If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. That is not what is in your worship guide. Um, I decided to call an audible because I'm the lead pastor and I get to do that. So we're going to look at 1 Peter. Really, we're going to be looking at all of Peter. Um, in addition, we'll be looking at those texts in front of you. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Our Father, we are here because of the chief shepherd, your son Jesus, who went after us when we had gone astray. Jesus, you have captivated us with your love and with your grace, and you have pulled us into yourself. It's why we are here. It's why we celebrate. It's why we sing. And it's why we come now before your word, because we're eager to hear from you. Lord, I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain. and May they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, we're going to be ordaining three men. Uh, we're going to be ordaining Alan King and Eric Williamson as elders, as lay elders of our church. And then we'll be ordaining Dwight Castle as a pastor, a full-time vocational pastor in this church. Uh, so we're going to be talking about, I thought this was an appropriate time for us to talk about church leadership and church government. Now, I already see, after we read the text, some of you are already eyeing the exits, uh, like a, a sermon on church government. Uh, but really, we've already stationed elders there. You cannot leave. <laughs> and uh, I know you're about as excited as this is maybe going through Leviticus or Lamentations, but uh, this is something actually that is incredibly important for us as a church. We purposely waited until most of the people came back from vacation over the summer because we wanted this to be heard um, by our entire church. A church is only as healthy as its leadership. A church is only as healthy as its leadership. Uh, more than that, I would say that the congregation of a church takes on many of the qualities of its leadership. So if the leadership is missions-minded, usually the congregation is going to be missions-minded. If the leadership of the church believes in the authority of Scripture, the centrality of the Word, then you are going to have a congregation that believes in the authority of Scripture and the centrality of the Word. If the leadership is humble and is kind and is patient, 
you're going to have that in your congregation. And negatively, this is true. I would say, actually, negatively, this is doubly true. That if your leadership is arrogant, if it is selfish, then you better believe that you will have a congregation that reflects that, that is full of backstabbing, gossiping, unkind, divisive people. The church reflects its leadership. This is why all of these qualifications that you have there in your worship guide from Titus and from 1 Timothy is why you see all of these godly qualifications that are necessary to be an elder. These men need to be these things because these are going to be the things that are reflected out through the church. And so when you read things like an elder has to manage their household well, or an elder has to be a good father, the reason that's so important is because that is going to be manifested through the congregation. And God will not allow a bad father or one who is mediocre at household management for that mediocrity to spread throughout the congregation. He says, no, these have to be men of character. They have to manage their household well. And he goes through all of these lists in Titus and in 1 Timothy of what, it, what you're looking for in an elder. And I hope as you just take the, the time to glance over these, you'll realize something that they're really not that extraordinary these qualities. As a matter of fact, it's a pretty ordinary list. Uh, I've, I've heard that it, the only thing remarkable about these qualifications is that they aren't that remarkable. This is what is expected of every Christian, really, these qualifications, with the exception of being able to teach. But this is why it's so important to find men of this character, because that's the character we want throughout the church. We want men who has, have these qualifications. Now, some of you, I'm sure in here, and just hearing the word elder, eldership, just kind of creeps you out, all right? Uh, I grew up with that. Uh, I, I, we didn't have elders in the church tradition that, um, that I had. We, you know, we had deacons, we had congregational votes, we had all this. And, and when I think of an elder, or did at the time, you kind of think of a, a really old man with long beard, uh, plain clothes, uh, you have to have buttons, not zippers, you know. Uh, they, they meet in closed door secret meetings, talking about how they could get women to be submissive to them, you know, and that's just, that's what elders do. And I've had to go against that and re-educate myself as to what an elder actually is. Throughout the New Testament, the word elder and the word pastor are used interchangeably. They mean the exact same thing. And the word pastor and the word shepherd are the exact same word in Greek. Shepherd and pastor. What, what we're installing here today with these men are shepherds of the church. It's not a bunch of men who are a board of directors. It's not people who want to be CEO or just, you know, have closed door meetings and talk about how they can make the church bigger, you know, or things like that. that that's not their role. They are shepherds. And this is a language I think that we need to keep. I've heard a number of other churches transitioning away from the language of shepherd, um, you know, maybe using the term team leader, coach, you know, whatever you want to learn, but use, but you miss something when you don't have the image of shepherd. 
A shepherd who takes care of the flock. A shepherd who gets dirty with the sheep. A shepherd who rejoices in bringing the stray sheep back home. And it's the image that God uses of, of him. Jesus is the great shepherd. And so we need to keep that language here and we need to have that image here when we think of our elders because ultimately our elders as shepherds are to point to the chief shepherd, Jesus, and how they serve and lead this church. So I don't think this term is outdated or archaic or no longer of use. We need to hold fast to this term of elders as shepherds. Now, in Paul's letter to Titus, which you have there in front of you, chapter 1, verse 5, we read these words. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul, as an apostle, as a herald of the gospel, has been going around Crete. He's been establishing churches and he's moved on to another mission to plant even more churches. However, when he leaves all of these congregations, he doesn't just leave them alone. But he sent them Titus. And he, he entrusted with Titus this one task. He said, Titus, I need you to appoint elders in every one of these churches. I just want you to stop and just think about that. I know we, we just read over things like that, but just think. Paul, he saw the churches he had planted, that they were spirit-filled, they were Bible-believing, full of born-again Christians, and yet he knew they could not become the people that God wanted them to be until elders were appointed over them. Paul saw that it was absolutely necessary for churches to have shepherds to help guide the people in their devotion to the Lord. Now, Paul could have just said, Titus, Titus, you know, we did a whole lot of work. We've planted these churches and there is nobody more knowledgeable you, than you. There is nobody uh, that I trust more than you who cares about this more than you. So I just need you to do this. I just need you to follow up and be the pastor and lead all these churches. But he doesn't do that. And although it's true that there was nobody more knowledgeable than Titus, there's no one who knew the gospel or the Bible more than Titus, no one more gifted than Titus. But he doesn't say, Titus, I want you to lead these churches. He says, instead, I want you to pick elders, pick men who will lead these churches. And that's the task that Titus has. And notice here that he doesn't charge Titus to go and pick one guy per church. I want you to find the senior pastor. I want you to find that one guy and put him over each church. He says, find elders. Every time you go throughout the New Testament, you're going to see elders in plural. Never is one person to guide the church. There's always a plurality of leadership. There's always multiple men there. So there's not to be that one guy. There's not to be that one personality that the church is identified with. This is not Joel's church. And this is hard in a podcast culture. And so, you, you know, you listen to a John Piper podcast and you think of John Piper's church or a Tim Keller podcast and you think of Keller's church, but it's not their church. 
One of the reasons we actually have a plurality of teaching here at Redeemer. I teach about two-thirds of the time. The other thirds, we have different elders preach. It's because it shouldn't be identified as just me and my voice and my personality. There's a shared leadership in a healthy church. And you see that so clearly here in Scripture. Redeemer is to be all of our churches, but is represented and is guided most fully through this leadership of this group of men called the elders. Now, I shared this story a, a number of years ago, uh, but I'm going to have to embarrass my middle child again, Natalie, because I'm going to share it again. Uh, but Natalie wanted to uh, go on a trip with me over the weekend one time. And so she asked, Daddy, can we go on a trip? And I said, well, we, we can't because I've, I've got to be there on Sunday. She goes, but I don't get it. Don't you get to do whatever you want? I mean, you're the lead pastor. I was like, well, no, I, I don't get to do whatever I, I want. I need to be there. And, you know, I'm just one of many elders that are there. She goes, but you're the boss, right? I said, actually, no, I'm, I'm not the boss. Um, she goes, but you can fire them, right? I said, well, no, I, I actually, they're lay elders. I mean, what would firing look like? We don't pay you anymore. Like, they're the ones who can fire me. And she just thought about it for a moment, and then she got really sad and goes, but no, why would they ever want to fire you? And I was like, I don't think they are. I mean, I haven't, I haven't got any secret memo about that. But, but there's this shared authority, and, and, and I'm not elevated over any of these guys who are lay elders. It's not the church is not to be ruled by one guy, no matter how good the guy is, gifted the guy is, or godly the guy is. That was not God's intention for the church. So the, the local church is to not be a monarchy, if you will. But I have to say this, when you look throughout history, monarchies are by far the most efficient way to lead um, to lead a country, to lead a city. Having a senior pastor with all the power is by far the most efficient way to lead a church. Um, decisions can be made quickly, decisively. Vision can be instilled in people almost instantly because it all comes from one guy. Uh, th think of the frustrations that you've had with church. I mean, other churches, obviously, not, not this church, but, 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 but think of some of the frustrations that you've had with, with all these other churches. Uh, and perhaps it's, it's been because the wheels of a church move so slowly. So you come up to somebody in leadership, maybe with a suggestion or something you want to see the church do, and you're really excited about it. We need to start this Bible study or this outreach. Or maybe you want to give benevolence towards this person or this program. And so you come to somebody on leadership and you're like, we really should do this. And you probably get the answer of, thanks for like bringing that to my attention. I'll take it before our leadership and we'll discuss it. And you're like, Disc I mean, when am I going to hear back? We, we need these decisions now. And, and you could get frustrated at how slow sometimes the wheels of church move. Now, if you had a lead pastor with all of the power and the authority, you'd come up and be like, that's a great idea. We'll do it. Nope, that's a terrible idea. We're not decisive, quick, but things happen. And if you have a godly lead pastor, it is the 
best, most efficient way you can lead a church. So the positive effects I would see are enormous. So you have to ask the question, why did God choose not to set up church leadership that way? And it's a good question. I'll tell you that I don't think it's because God was just hedging his bets. You know, hey, things work really well when we got the right guy there, but we all know what happens when you get the wrong guy there. You get the wrong guy there, takes the church off in the wrong direction, terribly abuses power. I know for a fact that a number of you are here at this church because of the terrible abuse of another lead pastor at another church. And you've come into here with road rash. One, one of the meetings I had last week was I got church road rash and I was just dragged through and it's painful to walk again in a church. And some of you just, you have a terrible even fear of church leadership now because of what has happened to you. And so yes, you can see the terrible effects of when you have the lead pastor with all the power and then he becomes domineering or goes astray through his sin. But I don't think that God set up this system here just to hedge his bets. Say, so we need checks and balances. We need to make sure, you know, whether it's good, it can't be that great. Whether it's bad, it can't be that bad. We just, we check and balance one another. I don't think it's, th- it's that. I think God set up eldership to be the way that a church is led because God values humility. He values humility. And he values it so much, he set up a governing structure that requires it to work. Humility, if if an elder group of men, if they're together and they don't have humility, eldership falls apart. It cannot work. If you have one person who's just domineering, one person who's bullheaded, the whole system falls apart. And so God, he he sets up a system that requires men to be patient and kind and to graciously to submit to one another. Now, I have to confess that there are times that I disagree with our elders that, that have some strong disagreements. I wanted the personal jet, you know, and they said no. I realize if you're visiting, sarcasm. That was a sarcastic thing. Don't, don't think, all right. Well, I'm glad they said no. No, I'd never suggested that. So there's times I, I, I do disagree. And that's common for all the elders, that there's times decisions are being made that they disagree. So, so what are we supposed to do in that moment when you disagree? Do you, do you shout? Do you scream? Do you just kind of, you know, you force your way through? Is that what you're supposed to do? Or do you say first, well, let me hear. Let me patiently listen. Let me pray that maybe the Spirit would guide us all on the same page. And then if still after all of that, you still disagree, then you graciously submit. I still disagree, but I graciously submit because I believe, and this is how the Lord moves his church and works through our leadership. Eldership needs to reflect John 17, that we are unified and we love one another in such a way that the world takes notice and says that's only because of Jesus and who he is. And it's hard at times when you believe that you are right. 
and other men are wrong. That's the nature of a disagreement. But hear me, I think that God is just as glorified through the means as he is through the ends. Okay, and we focus so much on the end decision or we focus so much on the actual work we do. And those are great and God is glorified in those, but he is glorified just as much in how we get there. How are we making these these decisions? How are we treating one another through this process? And if we are kind and if we are patient, and if we are seeking the Lord in this, I believe he is glorified in the process and not just in the ends. All right, so I was recently asked by um, some other pastors. We were having lunch together, and they asked me the question, so so what do you do when your elders oppose you? What do you do when you've got this God-given vision and they won't get on board with it? What do you do? I thought about it, and I said, well, I would submit. And you would have thought like an alien had landed there and they were looking at an alien. Like, what? It's like, well, I would would submit. I would submit to their authority. And they had a hard time understanding that. I said, "Well, well, well, for one, these are godly men with godly counsel and I have to at least acknowledge that I might be wrong. Why should I think all of them have the blind spots and yet I don't have the blind spot? So I need to at least acknowledge that they might be right and I might be wrong. But regardless, even if my position is right and theirs is wrong, God is honored in the process. He's honored in the means and not just in the ends. And that's how he set up the church leadership. God set up a church government that requires people to be humble in order for it to work. And I think that is a beautiful thing. Ultimately, it points us to Jesus, our humble Savior. Now, one of the things that jumps out to me as I read through 1 Peter, we are getting in 1 Peter, is the humility that's on every page of 1 Peter. And what he says to the elders especially just drips with this humility. And so look at verse 1 again. Peter, he says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So here at the end of his letter, Peter is addressing now just the leadership. So he's addressing the elders of the church, and he addresses them as a fellow elder. He, He doesn't say, Guys, as the apostle, as you know, the one they call the rock, listen to me. He doesn't call himself the apostle. He doesn't call himself the rock. He says, I'm a fellow elder. I'm one of you guys. And then the very thing he says after that, he says, in order to like to give you his credentials, he says, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He brings up his failure there. When did, when did Peter witness the, the sufferings of Christ? He wasn't there at the cross witnessing it because he had run. When Jesus was arrested, well, he also ran with the rest of the disciples. He was a witness to the sufferings of Christ when he was in the courtyard outside the temple and he saw Jesus getting beaten. And he was denying Jesus. 
while Jesus was being interrogated and beaten. Even when he acknowledges here as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, he is highlighting not his successes, but he is highlighting his failures before this group of men. And this is something you see throughout the letter. How Peter humbles himself because he sees how God works through his weaknesses and not through his strength. And that's what it means to be called to be an elder. It's not your strengths. It's not all your successes. It's to be very open and vulnerable with your weaknesses and your failures. And you allow God to use those to guide the church. The most powerful truths we have in 1 Peter come from Peter's failures, not from his successes. Let me just walk through those because I realize you could just say that and then not get back to the text. But I want to just walk through 1 Peter. Plus, we're about to do it as a church, so maybe you could see 1 Peter in a different lens, those of you who are in the 1 Peter study. So chapter 1, verse 6, Peter talks about being grieved by various trials and how this is a time of testing for one's faith. How can you not read that and think about how Peter was grieved in his trial and how his faith was tested and how he failed? He utterly failed. But he's pulling out that failure as a way of actually encouraging the church. I failed, but look how the Lord has restored me. And now I know to rejoice in the trials that are coming. Chapter 2, verse 5. Famous passage in Peter. Oh, Peter, he says that we've now come to God like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. It's this beautiful imagery of living stones. Now, where did Peter get this idea that church members are rocks in the church, building up the church. It's because Jesus looked at Simon and said, you're no longer Simon Barjona. You are Peter. You are the rock on which I will build the entire church. And so he says, he's a rock. And now we are all rocks, but he's highlighting his failure because we all know as we read that story, right after Jesus called him the rock, what's the next thing Jesus called him? Satan. That moment that should have been so triumphant for Peter was a time of total humiliation as Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. We go on. Chapter 2, verse 24. Peter writes, by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like a sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, you, you cannot read this, I, I hope, without thinking of Jesus sitting at the table with his disciples the night that he was betrayed, and he says these words to them. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Peter was a scattered sheep, but who was brought back to the shepherd 1 Peter 3.15, Peter writes that we are always to be prepared to give a defense for the reason of our hope. I mean, it is hard not to read that 
always prepared to give a defense and think, like you were, Peter? Like you were so ready, you know, to give that defense. Peter is highlighting his utter failure. He was utterly unprepared to give a defense for the reason for his hope. But now we look who Peter is and who he is now, and it gives us such incredible hope that that utter failure, now look at him. Now look at the boldness that he has. Chapter 4, verse 8. Peter tells us that love covers over a multitude of sins. It's hard to read that and not think of Jesus' conversation with Peter after the resurrection in which they're dealing with Peter's sins. And Jesus just simply asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Chapter 5, verse 2. He tells the elders to shepherd the flock of God. Man, Peter loves this language of, uh, of the shepherd with the sheep. He loves using that to describe Christ and his church and the role of the pastors. Where do you think Peter got that imagery? Well, it's from his restoration. Peter, do you love me more than these? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He never got over that notion that he was being called to shepherd God's sheep. But that came from a moment of incredible failure with him and being restored from it. Chapter 5, verse 8. Peter writes, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter writes this from experience. You know, Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, he looked at Peter and he said, Satan has asked to come after you. He goes, and I'm going to let him. Could you imagine Jesus saying that to you? Satan has asked to come after you, to sift you like wheat, and I'm going to let him for a season, but then I'll restore you. Peter writes these powerful words. Why? Because he experienced Satan devouring him. And I love how Peter, he closes this letter. I mean, it's one of the best benedictions we have. Verse 10, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That is exactly what Jesus did for Peter. He restored him, confirmed him, strengthened, and established him after his failure. Peter only got to be the great leader that he was because of his weakness and because of his failures. And then God restoring him from that. And here he's exhorting these elders and he's reminding them of the humility, humility necessary, but also just reminding them, don't shy away from your weakness. God uses weakness and failure for his glory. And that's how you lead the church. I mean, why, why, why go through all this? Why walk all the way through 1 Peter? I love 1 Peter. That's reason enough. 
to walk through this, but I want you guys to see that your failures, your weaknesses, through God's grace, all become platforms for his glory. In many ways, they qualify you for leadership because they have humbled you, and now people get to see the gospel at work in your life. Peter simply could not have been the leader, the rock he was supposed to be apart from those things. Now, elders are not perfect men. I can attest to you that many of our elder meetings, many turn into times of just confession of sin and acknowledgement of all the ways we have failed. A lot of times we just start, all right, first failure. You know, like, I mean, we just, we just acknowledge our fail. We feel the weight of our failures. But God uses even the failures of men to guide and to direct his church. That's our hope and confidence. In just a moment, we're going to ordain some of our men as elders. And I want to just read this quote that, that I think pulls a lot of this together. It's by a woman named Barbara Brown about what it means to be ordained. And see this in light of what Peter does. She says, Being ordained is not about serving God perfectly, but about serving God visibly, allowing other people to learn whatever they can from watching you rise and fall. You probably won't be much worse than other people, and you certainly won't be any better. But you will have to let people look at you. You will have to let them see you as you are. Can I tell you how thankful I am that Peter allowed us to see him as he is? And that was our encouragement and edification of the church. Um, let me pray for us, and then I have the elders come forward. Father, I pray you would write these words on our hearts. Thank you that you turn our weaknesses, our sins, our failures into platforms of your grace and your glory. I thank you that you love this church so much that you've established shepherds to help take care, take care of us and to lead us closer to you. I pray you would be with us in this time as we ordain these men. In the name of Jesus, amen.